This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thanks very much, Vajashura. That's a very generous introduction. A bit difficult to follow it. Thank you. Um, so yes, um, yesterday Vajashura, excuse me while I get my case sorted out. Yesterday Vajashura talked to us about the last days of the Buddha, um, leading up to what we'd normally call the Buddha's death or his uh, parinibbana. So in physical terms, the Buddha died. Um, the body that people could touch with their hands uh, died and was burned on a pyre. Um, he was no longer present for human beings to experience in the way that we experience the material things of the outer world. So in that sense, the Buddha died. Um, and the big question I'd like to raise in this talk today is, um, is the Buddha dead for us? Is the Buddha just some chap who uh, ceased to exist while our ancestors were still wearing animal skins and uh, daubing themselves with woad in Britain? Um, is he just this man who left some profound teachings behind, but who we can never have any real living connection with? Or can the Buddha still be alive for us? Um, can he be a living um, presence? Can the Buddha still inspire us? and guide us and help us to find spiritual resources that we didn't know we had. Um, and the answer to that question might be quite important for us because it might make the difference between um, a merely intellectual engagement with the teachings and a deep lived heartfelt connection uh, with something greater than ourselves, a connection with something that comes from beyond our small personal sphere of experience. So that's the question I'd like to explore in this talk. The Buddha passed into Nirvana, he died uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Does that mean that the Buddha is dead for us? Uh, and if not, how can we cultivate a living connection with the Buddha? Okay, um, looking at this from our sort of rationalistic conceptual worldview, um, we might say, well, what's the problem? What's the problem? Um, the Buddha himself isn't here, but what really matters are his teachings. Um, and they survive. It's the words that matter. And we've still got the words, why bother with the Buddha? Um, I've come across some research on human communication that estimated that just 6% of what uh, a person communicates during a conversation comes through their words. The other 94% comes through tone of voice, pace and rhythm of voice, facial expression, the look in the eyes, the way a person moves and holds their body, um, all sorts of signals that we aren't even conscious of, and perhaps even some communications that don't have any physical aspect at all, that we pick up through antennae, we don't even know we have. What a person mainly communicates is themselves, who they are, what they're like, their state. The Buddha communicated enlightenment directly through who he was. I wouldn't like to argue for the accuracy of those figures, 6% and 94%. Um, I also come across some um, 
somewhere the idea that 50% of statistics are made up on the spot, In, <laughs> including that one. Um, so, you know, maybe... Um, maybe 94%, whatever, but most, I'm pretty convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that most of what, human be what one human being communicates to another does not come through the words. The words are just this 6% or so, this tiny part. So we've still got some of that 6%, some of the 6% of what the Buddha communicated. We've got some of the Buddha's words, but we've lost the other 94%. Or maybe actually much more than 94%, because in the Buddha's case, because he, he was, seems to have been just such a powerful personality. Um, his very presence inspired and puzzled and awed people. Uh, his presence was a powerful teaching and example in its own right. Even a bit of a shock for some people. So we get stories over and over again in the Pali Can. We heard some of them in the Parinibbana Sutta yesterday. Stories where over and over again... Um, how people's whole lives were turned around as a result of just one meeting with the Buddha. Um, their whole vision of the world was illuminated, uh, as though someone had brought a lamp into a dark room. But then we read those words, the words the Buddha said, and they don't turn our lives around. It's not like somebody switched the light on for us, um, because the Buddha isn't there to say them. The 6% just isn't enough. How do we get the other 94% um, or more? That's what I'm going to talk about. And that's been a big, serious question for Buddhists ever since the Buddha passed into, into Parinirvana, ever since his physical body died. In fact, it's been a, it was a serious question for Buddhists even during the Buddha's lifetime. Um, because people couldn't be with the Buddha all the time. So maybe someone had just had one or two encounters with the Buddha... Um, they'd been inspired and their eyes had been opened. But they needed to stay in touch with that when they were away from the Buddha. Uh, they needed to keep those events as the ruling principle in their lives, the sort of pole star of their lives. So they brought the Buddha to mind in their imagination. In their imagination, they re-experienced the power of the Buddha's presence, uh, the emotions they felt, the reverence they felt, and the insights that went along with those emotions. So, for example, in the Pali Canon, we read about an old man called Pingya. And Pingya tells a friend that he's too old to travel to see the Buddha. But he describes his practice by saying, there is no moment for me, however small, that is spent away from Gotama. With constant mindfulness, it is possible for me to see him with my mind as clearly as with my eyes, by night as well as day. And since I spend my nights revering him, there is not a single moment spent away from him. I cannot now move away from the teaching of Gotama. The powers of faith and joy hold me there. This universe of wisdom draws me towards it. Physically, I cannot move like that. I am old and weak. But the driving power of purposeful thought propels me constantly. So and then later in the Sutta, the Buddha tells Pingya that that practice that he's doing, that practice of imaginatively connecting with the Buddha, connecting with the Buddha in his imagination, that that practice will lead him all the way to enlightenment. 
So the Buddha says, Pingya, other people have freed themselves by the power of faith. Vakali, Bhadravuta and Alavi Gotama have all done this. You too should let that power release you. You too will go to the further shore beyond the reach of death. So even in the Buddha's day, recollecting the Buddha, imagining the Buddha, calling the Buddha and his qualities to mind and experiencing the impact of his personality in the imagination was an important practice. Um, and a practice that the, the Buddha encouraged, that the Buddha said could lead all the way to liberation. People might know the Dharma, they might know the words, but that was the way to get the missing 94% even when the Buddha wasn't there. And then, of course, after the Buddha's parinirvana, uh, this question of how to get the missing 94% becomes even more uh, pressing. So in the Mahayana suttas, in the later scriptures, sutras, in the later scriptures, this issue comes up over and over again. Um, for example, in the Sutra of Golden Light, um, we see, we're introduced to a certain Ruchira Ketu, um, who is troubled in his meditation about the question, why did the Buddha die? In other words, why is the Buddha not a living experience for me? And because he's in deep meditation, and because he's a dedicated practitioner of the Bodhisattva ideal, a great being of great merit, uh, he gets an answer in no uncertain terms. So there he is, sitting in his house, in meditation, longing for a li living connection with the Buddha, when suddenly the walls of his house vanish and extend out to infinity. And uh, four enormous thrones appear, one in each of the cardinal directions, thrones made of light. And on those thrones, enormous, magnificent Buddhas appear, one in each of the four cardinal directions. And the four, and these four Buddhas speak together that with one resounding voice, saying, the drops of water in the ocean be, can be counted, but no one can count the life of the Buddha. Even the sky can be measured, but there's no measuring the Buddha Shakyamuni. So be free from doubt. The Buddha never leaves this world. The Buddha is eternal. The Buddha is inconceivable beyond the mind of man. And the same comes up again in another very famous Mahayana Sutra, the, the Lotus Sutra, the White Lotus Sutra. Here again, the Buddha appears in an archetypal form and he assures his followers that he's always present for those who are open to him. So he says, when beings have faith with upright characters and gentle minds wholeheartedly wishing to see the Buddha, then I, with all the Sangha, am there on Vulture's Peak. If in another place there are other beings aspiring with reverence and faith, then I am with them also. You, not knowing this, think that I am dead and gone, but I see all living beings and when their hearts are filled with longing faith, I appear to them to teach the Dharma. Throughout countless ages, I am always on Vulture's Peak and in every other place. Okay, at this point, our rational minds might kick in and go, Whoa! Whoa! Is the Buddha dead or isn't he? Is he a human being or is he a god? Um, one way or the other. Either he's a human, he was a human teacher, in which case he's dead and gone, 
Or are we sort of trying to deify him here? Are we turning him into some sort of god? What is his ontological status, to use the philosophical jargon? Um, or to put it more plainly, does he exist or doesn't he? Um, and we wouldn't be the first person to ask that question. We wouldn't be the first person to ask that question. What is the Buddha's status after the death of his physical body? Um, so, for example, in the Pali Canon, a certain Vachagota um, asks the Buddha whether an enlightened being continues to exist after death. And the Buddha tells him, it would not be true, Vachagota, to say that an enlightened being continues to exist after death. It would not be true to say that an enlightened being does not continue to exist after death. It would not be true to say he both continues and does not continue. <laughs> and it would not be true to say he neither continues nor does not continue. <laughs> At which point poor old Vachagota says, now I'm really confused. <laughs> and the satisfaction I had from my previous discussions with Gotama have dis has disappeared. Um, and the Buddha replies, of course, um, it's difficult for you to understand, Vachagota. Uh, this is deep and mysterious. This is beyond the categories in which you are used to thinking. This is beyond anything you can fit into your ideas of the world. This is deep and mysterious. Reality is deep and mysterious. And I think it's great that reality is deep and mysterious, that we can't fit it into the neat little ideas that we try to use to bring the magnificence of reality down to our own size. If we want to live a meaningful life, we need to live from something bigger than those ideas. Uh, we need to live from the depth and mystery of things. Um, and the way we open up to this depth and mystery is by using our spiritual imagination. So a lot of us have probably got the idea that there's the real world, which is a rather grey and routine world of everyday reality. And then there is the unreal, but maybe exciting world of the imagination. But really, it isn't like that at all. We don't know what the real world is, and we will not know until we're enlightened. Um, I think we can be pretty sure the real world is more beautiful and more awesome and stranger than we are capable of imagining at the moment. We do not live in the real world. We live in the stories we tell ourselves about the world. We live in an imaginative construction of the world. Um, and currently the stories we tell about the world tend to include that the universe we inhabit is a dead, meaningless machine, that human life is ultimately meaningless, that the human mind is like a computer, but if we carry on get, getting more and more stuff, we will become happy. Um, and we tend to think, perhaps, that those are just the truth. But at other times and in other places, the stories that have been told about the world have been radically different. Um, and the reason the real world, often the supposed real world, often seems drab is not because it really is drab, it's because the stories we tell about it, the stories we live in, are drab and lifeless. Um, the way we imagine the world is drab and dull and likely to lead to a sense of meaninglessness. So we need to bring our imagination alive to live in a deeper story, um, a more real and meaningful story, to connect with the deep dimension of reality. 
the depths and the heights, the awesome mystery of it all. To live a vivid, meaningful, full-colour life. Throughout history, human beings in every culture have recognised the existence of this deeper dimension to reality. The dimension from which the stories that give real meaning to life well up. They valued the people, they valued that dimension, they've been open to it, and they valued the people who have access to it, and allowed it to give depth and meaning to their lives. It's only in this little aberration in human history that we live in the present that we try to ignore that dimension and limit ourselves to the shallow surface of things. Um, and as Buddhists, we need to live the deepest story of them all. Uh, the one that gives most meaning to life. This is the story about us all moving towards enlightenment, moving towards the Buddha. Us each as individuals moving towards the, the, the potentially enlightened being we could become. And as a Sangha, us all moving towards the enlightened community that we could become. The community that could revitalize us as a society and change the world. So we need to live from that deeper story. And to do that, we need to experience as enlightenment as a living factor in our lives. And the way we do this is through our spiritual imagination. Um, our rational mind cannot form a concept of enlightenment. Um, we literally cannot conceive of what it would be like to be enlightened. But the imagination has a magic that the conceptual mind lacks. Um, it can do that because there is something in us that resonates with enlightenment. We have a potential for enlightenment that speaks to us through our spiritual imagination. Imagination is the faculty that connects us with what could come about in the future. Everything we make or create, we imagine first. And the spiritual imagination is the faculty that connects us with the potential for enlightenment that's trying to manifest in us. Okay, some of us might find all this talk about the imagination a bit of a shock um, because we've been taught very often to think of the imagination in quite limited or even negative ways. Um, we live in a profoundly materialistic society um, where the prevailing worldview tells us that matter is all that is really real, mind isn't real, um, and where things are prioritised over inner values. So the inner mental world we inhabit is seen as a sort of illusion. So we say things like, uh, well, that's just in your mind when we want to uh, dismiss something. Or we say something is just your imagination, by which we mean um, make-believe, not true, not important. No matter that without imagination, we wouldn't have had the idea to bang two rocks together to make some flint. Um, no matter that without, without the, the imagination, we need not even have thought of living in caves. We say, just imagination, just imagination, mere make-believe. So this materialist prejudice that most of us have, have been strongly conditioned to carry around with us, causes to have this completely upside-down uh, set of priorities. So I'll tell a story that I think illustrates that. And it's the story of a Sangha, one of the founders of the Yogacara tradition. Of Buddhism. So the Yogacara tradition that Asanga was uh, instrumental in founding 
it refreshed the Buddhist tradition at a time when it was in danger of becoming too intellectual and abstract and even nihilistic. And it brought a new balance. Its ideas lie behind many Far Eastern Buddhist schools. So the Yogacara had this really profound positive effect on the lives of millions of people. It brought a dimension of wisdom and beauty and refinement to whole cultures. Sangha was an important chap. Um, he was born in present-day Pakistan in the 4th century of the Christian era. And he became a monk and he felt called to spend some time in deep meditation. So he, um, he journeyed to a mountain on the border between India and Tibet. And he found a cave high up in the cold mountain. And he dedicated himself to solitary meditation for years and years and years. He's said to have spent 12 years meditating in his cave. Um, 12 years going inwards, opening up to the imaginal world, looking into the depths of things. And while he was doing this, I'm sure he didn't look very prepossessing from a material point of view. Um, I'm sure he was probably malnourished and scruffy and thin and dirty. Um, he probably had some really ragged old robes and uh, some battered, really smelly old sandals and an old black cooking pot in which he used to boil up his food. Um, but during his meditation, the tradition tells us that Asanga accessed a different realm called the Tushita Heaven. And while he was in the Tushita Heaven, he received teachings from Maitreya, the future Buddha, which formed the basis of the Yogacara tradition. So that's a mythic way of saying that he experienced a higher, deeper level of reality in which he contacted a source of deep wisdom and clear vision that was not available to him in his normal state. Um, and this source of deeper wisdom and clear vision became the basis for the Yogacara tradition that had such a positive impact on whole cultures. Um, but to the materialist mind of the modern West, Asanga's vision of Maitreya, which he had in deep meditation, and a teaching he received are just in the mind, just imagination. Maybe they're even pathological, uh, the result of some sort of chemical imbalance. Maybe you should have had more vitamin B. <laughs> um, to the materialist, Asanga's dirty sandals are real. His visionary experience of Maitreya is not real. But in fact, Asanga's visions of Maitreya opened up truths that gave deep meaning to, whole to many lives and revolutionised whole cultures. Who cares about his sandals? <laughs> uh, our materialism is an upside-down view of things. So Asanga, in his years meditating, became adept at accessing a dimension of reality that our culture tends to deny. Um, there is more to life than just the material dimension. Of course, there is the material dimension, the surface world of appearances we see around us, and it's important. We need to live and act in the material dimension. But there is also another dimension to reality, the dimension of depth, depth the, the dimension of the depths and heights of the mind. The dimension, the archetypal dimension, the dimension of myth and symbol, the dimension we access through imagination. That is the dimension that gives meaning to our lives. It's the dimension in which we can still encounter the Buddha. It's the dimension in which we can still encounter the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. 
Um, and the way we connect with that dimension of reality, the depths of reality, the way we connect with the Buddha is through the imagination at its highest. So this dimension of depth is where Asanga encountered the future Buddha. Um, it's the dimension of visionary experience, of deep meditation experience. It's the dimension that great artists and poets and musicians and scientists uh, are in when they t are in touch with when they get inspirations that seem to become from beyond their normal uh, conscious mind and person personality. It's the dimensions we get a taste of when we read their works or listen to their music. It's the dimension we sometimes enter in dreams um, when we have a particularly meaningful, significant dream. It's the dimension of intuitions, uh, when we get a sense that something is just deeply right or significant for us. And some people are, are better at accessing that dimension than others. Um, but it isn't just the province of great visionaries and mystics and meditators and poets. We all have access to that dimension. We are all really good at using our imagination. I give you sexual fantasies. <laughs> we are all really good at conjuring up pictures of what we desire. Um, the problem is that what we usually desire is at a fairly low level. It comes from a fairly crude level of being. If we could imagine enlightenment, if we could get just an inkling of how wonderful enlightenment would be, we would really want it. We would really want it and we would really move towards it. Um, so imagination is the way we access the deeper dimension of reality and we all have access to that dimension. But often, because we're taught that, the imagine, that imagination is just make-believe, uh, we don't allow ourselves to use it. We cut it off. We allow our rational mind to cut off our imagination at its knees. But to live vivid, meaningful lives in full colour, we need to have one foot in the outer world, the outer surface world of matter, and one foot in the inner world of depth, um, the world of myth, of symbol, of the imagination. And there's a really good myth about that, actually. There's a really good myth about that in Norse mythology, which is the myth of Odin, the god Odin and the well of wisdom. So Odin is pictured in Norse mythology usually as an old man with a long beard and a hooded cloak and a staff. I'm pretty sure he's the model for Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, actually. Um, and Odin is associated with wisdom, with magic, with poetry with prophecy and with inspiration. He's the leader of souls, the guide. Odin is the god who gives to worthy poets the need of inspiration. And to gain his knowledge, Odin is said to have torn out one of his eyes and thrown it into Mimir's well, the well of wisdom that goes right down to the roots of the world tree and on into another dimension, on into the place that existed before the world was formed. So one of Odin's eyes is always in the depths, in the dimension of the depths, right down at the root of things. He sees the surface world of appearances with one eye, um, but his other eye is always looking out onto the other dimension, the dimension of depth. And that's the source of his wisdom and his magic and the inspiration he gives to poets.
<laughs> so to have some of Odin's wisdom and inspiration, we also need to have not only one hour looking out onto the surface world of matter uh, and appearances, we also have to have one eye that looks into the depths. Uh, and that eye is imagination at its highest. We need to have one eye that at least some of the time looks into what we call could call the world of symbol and myth and archetype, the world we access with our spiritual imagination. The world where we can still sit in the presence of the Buddha. Uh, the world where we can still encounter the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And if we use our imagination to visit this deep dimension of reality, we will find all sorts of things there, all sorts of energies, all sorts of powers, all sorts of personalities even, lots of strange beasts. Um, and one thing we'll encounter is whatever it is that is drawing us towards the Dharma. Um, It's impossible to describe that fully. What is drawing us towards the Dharma? A deep love of certain values, maybe. Uh, a sense of our own potential. Something that seems to be pulling us towards it. Something that imbues certain things with great significance. Um, and all this is connected with what we usually call in, in Buddhism, Shraddha. Shraddha, the, word, the Sanskrit word Shraddha, is usually translated as faith. But that is a very bad translation, because we usually mean... By faith, we usually mean believing. And Shraddha is not about believing. It's about a sense of connection with something higher than ourselves. Sangharachtas define Shraddha as the response of what's ultimate in us to what is ultimate in the universe. Um, speaking poetically, we could call it our future self, the self we could be calling to us, telling us the way towards it. Um, Shraddha is a sort of heart knowledge um, that shows us the way towards what is truly valuable. And imagination and Shraddha are two parts of the way we human beings bring new creative futures into existence. Um, first, our imagination perceives a potential, something that could happen, something that we we could almost say poetically something that's seeking to happen, something that's seeking to manifest. And maybe our imagination perceives that quite dimly and faultily, but it gets an inkling through symbols and images and so on. And then our shraddha, our heart connection with that potential, draws us towards it. It makes us long for it and it keeps us focused on bringing it about. So to make serious spiritual progress, uh, we need to imagine enlightenment. Um, our imagination needs to perceive some sort of symbolic representation of enlightenment, which might involve images, words, sounds, anything. And then we need to cultivate our heart connection with those symbols so that we long for enlightenment, so that we are deeply moved uh, to do the things that move us towards it. And of course, for Buddhists, uh, for us, the preeminent symbol of enlightenment, uh, the preeminent symbol of what a human being could become, is the Buddha. So connecting with the Buddha in our imagination is a really vitally important practice. Um, imagining the Buddha and his qualities is becomes, after the Buddha's death, one of the most important meditation practices in most schools of Buddhism. Um, 
And it works. It works. It works because what we imagine and what we love, we want to move towards. Uh, so it comes into existence. What we dwell on, we become. If we imagine the Buddha, if we imagine enlightenment and we love and revere it, um, if we imagine ourselves in the presence of enlightenment, the tradition tells us that our mind starts to dwell on the plane of the Buddhas. We become naturally upright and ethical, naturally beautiful in our actions and in our thoughts. Um, and when I was thinking about this, how this works, how this might work, I was reminded of those experiments we certainly did at school with iron filings and a magnet. I don't know if you know that. You, 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 get a, you get a piece of paper with some iron filings and a magnet, and the magnet organises the iron filings into a pattern based on its, uh, its field of effect. Um, and in the same way, if we expose ourselves to the Buddha, the field of influence of the Buddha will organise the parts of our being into a pattern which uh, reflects the being of the Buddha. Um, and in this way, an imaginative connection with the Buddha can transform us. Um, imagination has got this magical quality to it, uh, this quality of transforming things, bringing things into existence. What we imagine strongly and fix our heart on and our will on tends to come about. We bring it into existence. Materialists see this world as a sort of dead machine where consciousness is powerless, just an accidental byproduct that has no power. Um, but actually, our minds have a big role in what comes into existence. Um, of course, phys physical and biological processes have got their own momentum, but they're not all there is. We co-create our world and our imagination plays a big role in creating the world we experience. We imagine the world into existence. What we imagine and set our wills on is conjured up, conjured up into existence. That's the essence of magic. That's what magic really is. And we're all magicians. We're all always bringing the world into existence. But we often don't know it. So the world we conjure into existence is maybe a dark place, or much more often just a really dull, boring place. Um, and because we're all, all magicians, um, we can learn something about how to live from the myths and archetypes of, magician, of the magician that crop up in every culture. So in our own culture, in, well, in, in British culture, we have the myth of the magician Merlin, who helped and guided King Arthur as he sought to transform Britain into an ordered and ethical realm. Uh, one of the stories about Merlin is that he lived backwards from the future to the present to the past. So he started out as an old man, and then he was an adult, and then he was a teenager, and then he was a child. Most of us live forwards. Um, we, we allow our past to determine our present to determine our future. If we've been a certain way in the past, we act that way now, and that creates the future we experience. But Merlin lived backwards. The magician lives backwards. And what that really means is that the magician makes the future rule how they act in the present. They base their actions on an, on an imaginative vision of what could be 
in the future rather than on past conditioning. So the future rules us. If we act like a magician, the future rules us, not the past. We've all got the magician's ability to do that. We do that when we live by our shraddha. We imagine the great being we could be and we let this govern our life, let this govern our actions in the present rather than our past conditioning. We let our heart connection with the enlightened being we could become pull us towards the future. Um, we let our imaginative vision of what the Sangha could become uh, rule the way we relate to others now. So we all have this power to co-create the future, uh, to live backwards so that we bring positive futures into existence. And to use that power, um, that power, the, 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 um, to use that power to bring the enlightened person that we could become into existence, we need to imagine enlightenment as vividly and as intensely as we can. We need to make it a real factor in our present lives. Um, and to do this, we need to set our imagination free. We need to stop sort of chopping it off at the knees all the time. Sometimes we need to get some practice of suspending disbelief. Suspending disbelief. Um, we need to give our critical, rational mind a holiday sometimes. Um, sometimes we need to switch off the mind that is always asking, is this factually correct? Okay. So there is such a thing as factual, external truth, if you like, material truth. But there's also such a thing as mythic truth. And we need to learn to distinguish between them, recognising that there is a real value in mythic truth. Something does not have to be factually true to be true at the mythic level. And mythic truth can be far more important than factual truth. Asanga's visions were more important than his sandals. <laughs> um, we've maybe got used to mixing them up a bit because one problem we've got well in, in, the, in the, tr the spiritual tradition that mainly comes down to us in our culture Christianity the two are just inextricably linked so there's myths in Christianity which might be actually very powerful positive myths like um, the virgin birth maybe representing something to do with uh, uh, innate uh, purity or something and uh, the the death and resurrection of Christ, perhaps something to do with spiritual death and rebirth. But if we were brought up as Christians, we're told, no, those aren't myths. Those are literally true. Christ actually died and was reborn. And that's what you must believe. So we reject that. And often in rejecting it, we reject the mythic truth that went along with it. So we need to see that distinction between mythic truth and factual truth. And I think that's the key to not falling on the one hand into some sort of new age credulity where we believe everything that's on the uh, that's written in the books on the shelf on mind, body and spirit in Waterstones. <laughs> not falling into that on the one hand, but also not um, being sort of cynical sceptics on, on the other hand where we cut off our ability to imagine. So we need to set our imagination free, um, sometimes give the critical mind a holiday while still using it, while still, you know, we still need the critical mind, the, the, uh, the rational faculty. But sometimes we do need to switch off that mind that's always saying, is this factually true? And actually, we're all very practiced at doing this. We're all, we all know how to do this. We all do this all the time. For example, we do it when we go to a theatre when we go to the theatre. We don't need to believe that what's happening on stage is literally true. 
for us to engage our imaginations with it and have our emotions transformed. We don't have to ask. You know, we don't have to sort of stand up. We don't stand up and go, look, he, I know him. He's not really a, a Danish prince. He is not a Danish prince. He's Fred and he lives down our road. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing we sometimes do to cut off our imagination when we're, when we're involved in the spiritual life. You know, we, we want to, you know, we're always asking those questions which mistake literal truth with mythic truth. So we're all really practiced at doing that. Um, so there's ways that we can do that in our spiritual life. We suspend disbelief. So when we do a puja, we suspend disbelief and imagine, experience that we really are in the presence of the Buddha. Um, when we chant a mantra, we suspend disbelief and engage with the idea that we really are invoking a Buddha or Bodhisattva, a real being with a real existence. When we enter a shrine room, we suspend disbelief and re relate to that shrine room as a sacred space. A space where, which is full of an energy that flows down to us through the tradition from the Buddha. When we sit down to meditate, um, we can suspend disbelief and do that with a sense that when we sit on our, on our cushion, there's an energy stream which flows down to us from the Buddha, which is present here and now, which can affect us here and now. Um, we can sit down with the sense that our meditation cushion is a branch establishment of the diamond seat on which the Buddha gained enlightenment. Um, when we sit on our cushion and take our posture, we perform a mythic act which opens up a connection with the power of the Buddha's enlightenment experience that echoes down the ages and flows from his diamond seat into every meditation seat. So, and one obvious thing we can do in our is, is to do the practice we did yesterday, to do the practice that Padmavadra led us through yesterday, at least occasionally. We imagine ourselves sitting in the presence of the Buddha. We call to mind the Buddha's qualities, his warm metta, his stillness, his deep <clears throat> peace, his joy, his mysterious depth. And as we imagine these qualities, we will experience at least an echo of them in ourselves. Or we could do a shorter version of that. We could do a shorter version of that perhaps every time we meditate. We imagine ourselves sitting in the presence of the Buddha. And we call to mind maybe just one quality, just one quality we want to nurture. We see it in the Buddha, we experience an echo of it in ourselves. We could do that at the beginning of the meditation to imbue our meditation with that quality, with the quality we're seeking to develop. We could do it with the metta bhavana to imbue our meditation with that warm metta. We could do it at the beginning of the mindfulness of breathing to imbue our meditation with stillness and peace. So we could begin every meditation like that by recalling the Buddha, bringing his presence to mind. We could imagine the Buddha as we go about our daily life. Um, chant his mantra when we need to. Uh, when we want to, yeah, chant, when we want to connect with certain spiritual qualities or when we want to protect our mind. Uh, we could chant the mantra of other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that we might have a connection with. When we want to connect with some spiritual quality in our daily lives, we're sitting at the bus stop, on the bus, or simply when we've got nothing to do. 
And when difficult circumstances come up uh, in our lives, we could ask ourselves, how would the Buddha be here? Um, how would the Buddha behave and allow the Buddha to um, become allow the Buddha to become the way we, we rule our present, in, in other words, allow our future, the future potential for enlightenment to rule the way we are in the present. I remember one occasion when this really hit me quite strongly, it just sort of came up in my mind. I was in a particular situation where I was in a, um, I was being sent off on an errand in a Land Rover, and um, I'd got some things to do, and the Land Rover had a puncture, and I was in the middle of nowhere, I was actually in Spain, and... Um, the spare had a puncture. <laughs> Communal projects can be fun. Um, the spare had a puncture as well. And I was stuck. I was basically stuck. I was just going to have to sit around for ages and wait for something to happen. And I remember this idea coming up to me very, very strongly because I was quite sort of stressed by this. And it's just, it just came up to me very strongly. Well, what would the, how would the Buddha be? How would the Buddha be here? And it was just very obvious. The Buddha would just enjoy it can't do anything about it, you do what you can do and you just enjoy the time. It completely transformed the experience. So we can carry the Buddha around as a sort of pair of glasses that we look at the world through. Um, and the world looks very different through those glasses. So we can use the enlightenment that we have the potential for to rule the way we behave in the present rather than our past, the way we've been in the past, ruling the way we are in the present. We can live like magicians. We could read the Pali Canon and imagine the historical Buddha, perhaps take a story from the Pali Canon um, as our starting point, and we could imagine the Buddha in as much detail as possible. What is the expression on his face? What's the look in his eyes? How does he hold his body? What does his body language express? What's his tone of voice? What would an enlightened being feel like? What would it feel like to be in their presence? And we could move on perhaps to relate that to ourselves. Well, what would it feel like to be an enlightened being? How would that feel? How magnificent could I be? How wonderful could the Sangha be? Then we could live as if. We could live from those possible futures, allowing them to rule how we are in the present so that we bring them into existence. And if we use our imagination in ways like this, we can live in the most meaningful story there is. We can live a life of deep meaning and vivid colour. We can live in a world where the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas are very much alive, where the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are real beings who can help and empower us in many ways. But would that just be self-delusion? Would we just be deluding ourselves? Well, I think when our critical mind kicks in with that question, we should perhaps remind ourselves of the Buddha's words to Vachagota. The state of the Buddha after death is deep and mysterious. Reality is deep and mysterious. Reality is more strange and wonderful than our rational mind and its small ideas can encompass. And it's a very good thing that reality is deep and mysterious because otherwise life would be really boring. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. 
and thank you.